So I get uh, my news online. I know some of you use the radio or the newspaper or TV, but because I get my line, uh, my, my news on the internet, I'm wrong hours ahead of the rest of you. So um, one of the places I get my my news um, is is a blog where the 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 writer is kind of the editor of my own little newspaper. Uh, he his his uh, desires and interests in in news uh, pretty much align with mine. And he reads a lot more of the internet than I do. So he blogs about 30 things a day, and most of them are pretty interesting. And, uh, one of them is coffee. He's a coffee achiever like me, and so he's interested in news about coffee, and whenever there's news anywhere in the world, I can pretty well count on him putting something in the newspaper, uh, in this, uh, online newspaper, this blog about coffee. And he, if it has anything at all to do with the health benefits of coffee, which are many, um, he will, he will say, Coffee, is there anything it can't do? And then tell you about the, the news item. So, um, so he be, he kind of tags every news item with that. And let me give you some examples. A couple of years ago, there was a, he found in the New York Times has a health blog. And they were talking about a totally different study. Uh, they had studied a lot of people for a long period of time. And they weren't looking at coffee except they noticed in the course of this study, they said men who reported drinking th- two or three cups of coffee a day were 10% less likely to have died than those who didn't drink coffee, while women drinking the same amount had 13% less risk of dying during the study. It's not clear exactly what coffee had to do with their longevity, but the correlation is striking. So if you've been wondering why should you drink coffee, there's one more reason. All right, but he's but he's by no means limited to just that one article. So let me give you some other headlines he's linked to in the past couple of years. Um, these are all under the heading coffee, is there anything it can't do? So, uh, one a couple of um, uh, years ago, a study, coffee lowers colon cancer risk. Or, drink two espressos to enhance long-term memory. Or, drink up, more coffee could lower diabetes risk. Or, coffee may keep your ears from ringing. Or, coffee may be able to lengthen your life and lower your risk of depression. Or just a couple of months ago, does more coffee mean less arterial plaque? So these are all filed on his on his website under the heading "Coffee." Is there anything it can't do? Now we are in a, um, uh, a conversation about discipleship, and uh, we've seen uh, that discipleship is uh, something that Jesus has commanded the church to do. He said, "He said, go and make disciples," and. Uh, we found that to be a disciple, we've been looking at what does that look like? What is, what is a disciple? Uh, what does it look like when someone becomes a disciple? So uh, what we've seen is that to be a disciple is basically to be an apprentice. It means a, a kind of learning, uh, a back-and-forth sort of learning, um, a hands-on, interactive learning. And what we've seen is it can be really easy. We saw a guy who, who to be a disciple, all he really had to do was go take a bath in the Jordan River. So it was that easy for him, and he was healed. What we've seen sometimes... It can be unnerving. Even if it's easy, it can be unnerving because Jesus doesn't teach us things off in a laboratory or a classroom, some safe little place. Jesus enlists us in his own, his own project because Jesus wants to bring grace and mercy and healing to the whole world. So he kind of uses us as his disciples, as ambassadors to the whole world. So it can be unnerving to kind of be on display as we're learning. No one likes to learn things in public. So... So we've learned these things. We've also learned that sometimes, even though Jesus has the answers to the questions we've got, we may not like 
the answers. We just may not like the implications. So one of the things we've looked at is what do you do when you think, maybe I don't want to be a disciple anymore. And so we've seen a lot of things. We've been looking at discipleship, but we're kind of done. We're wrapping it up today. Uh, Next Sunday is going to be Pentecost, and then we've got a whole different uh, conversation lined up for June. We're going to be talking about the Psalms. So so we're going to be doing these other things, but we're going to wrap it up today by looking at one last aspect of discipleship, and it is essentially the question that this uh, online site has about coffee, which is, is there anything discipleship can't do? Because I think that's really the question we should be asking. See, I think most of the time, the way we look at discipleship is we say, we say discipleship is great if you need it. You know, if I had an addiction, you know, I've heard so many people talk about the way that, that by becoming a follower of Jesus, they were able to manage their addiction. Uh, they were able to be healed of their addiction. I've heard people talk about how it got them through an ugly divorce. I've heard people talking about the way that when life is hard, it's been great for them to be a disciple. But I think a lot of us say, well, that's great, but my life's pretty good. My life's ordinary. I mean, it's not perfect, but it's like I don't really have any particular reason. Why would I be a disciple? What would Jesus show me in this area of my life? And, and so we, we kind of have put God in a box where we're saying, we're saying, if things get bad, if my life gets hard, then I'm prepared to be a disciple. When the question we should be asking is, discipleship, is there anything it can't do? We should be looking at our lives and saying, huh, I wonder what would happen if I tried some discipleship in this area of my life? Or what would happen if I tried this? And we should have the same attitude that the coffee achiever has about coffee. So what I want to do is I want to look at this passage of Scripture where Jesus encounters these three would-be disciples. We don't know, do they go on to become disciples or do they not? Uh, we just don't know. But Jesus says, here's something you need to realize about discipleship. And they say, ooh, I wasn't prepared for that. I didn't think you were going to ask that much. And so we don't know, did they finally decide I'm going to be a disciple or not? But Jesus says, it's not always going to be easy. And so I want to look at this passage, the the tail end of uh, chapter 9 of Luke's uh, biography of Jesus. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he, Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem. He said, I'm headed that way. Nothing is going to distract me from my goal. Jesus is prepared to go to the cross and then be raised on the third day. And he sends messengers ahead of them. And on their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans, um, Jesus is traveling from the north part of the country, which is Galilee. He's traveling through Samaria down to Judea, where Jerusalem is. So he's traveling through a part of the country. And I know this this is not what most people think about when they think about the Middle East, but there were religious differences there. And sometimes they got ugly and people fought over them. So we don't do that anymore, but back in those days that sometimes happened. And so they're traveling from the northern part through the south, through through Samaria on their way to to um, uh, Judea, and they're refused. They, they refused hospitality. They might have been allowed through if they were just traveling through. But because Jesus is going to Jerusalem, they say, oh, this is something to do with your religion, and we don't like your religion, and you don't like ours, so no, we're not going to host you here. And Jesus' two disciples say, say um, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven? They're thinking of this story where Elijah did the same thing. Uh, some people were sent to arrest him, and uh, twice he destroyed them with fire from heaven. And then the third, the third posse that came for him, they said, pretty please, 
And he said, sure, I'll come with you. So uh, they're thinking of that story. When, when God is insulted, should we call down fire on them? And Jesus, it says, Jesus turns and rebukes them. Now, I don't know what he said. My guess is something like, hey, uh, just a couple of verses ago, um, I had a conversation with, this, with Elijah. I know Elijah. Elijah's a friend of mine, and you are no Elijah's. So that's my guess is what Jesus said, something like that to them. But he said, no, we're not going to call down fire. And we can stop and say for a second, what does this have to do with discipleship? Why does Luke put this uh, event? Is he just kind of setting the stage, telling us Jesus is traveling? Why does he put this right before this, this, this triplet of lessons about discipleship? And, and I don't know. Luke's not here, so I can't ask him. But I have to think that the reason is because he wants to take fear off the table. Before he tells us about the cost and the benefit of being a disciple, he wants to say, and look, let's just put that to one side. Don't even worry. Okay, we're not going to talk about fear and judgment. We're going to talk about a God who loves you and will not, will not hurt you despite, uh, your provocation. So, so I think, uh, Jesus is taking fear off the table. He's saying, look, I don't want you to become a disciple because you're afraid of me. You won't be a good disciple if you're afraid of me. He says, I want you to be my disciple because you think I can help you. And so with that, then he launches into the next section. He says, as they're going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So what's wrong with that? Notice what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say, you're soft and you're weak. Drop and give me 30. I need you to be tough disciples who don't look for creature comforts. Jesus doesn't say there's anything wrong with having a bed. Jesus doesn't say there's anything at all wrong with that. In fact, in Matthew 25, Jesus tells his disciples, uh, he talks about the day when the king will judge the world. And he says, he says uh, there will be a group that is rewarded because Jesus says, I was a stranger and you took me in. So Jesus is not saying there's anything wrong with, with having a house. He just says, you may not get one. And then the next person says, um, uh, he says, follow me. And this person says, Lord, first let me go bury my father. And Jesus says to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So uh, this guy says, hey, I have an obligation. I need to go bury my father. Now, probably what that means in context, because they had a very short window of time when people had to be buried. Um, so he probably doesn't mean dad is in the funeral home right now waiting for the funeral. He probably means my dad is ill, or my dad's getting on in years. A funeral is in the nearer future, but I don't know exactly when. Let me take care of that obligation. And that's a reasonable thing to do. In fact, it's a valued thing to do. It's uh, keeping the, the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. In that culture, it would have been a part of a lot of other uh, other public witness to the world about whether you whether you respect your father, um, and for that matter, this this could have been the eldest uh, son in a family, which means he's got all kinds of additional responsibilities landing on him. He's going to have to take care of unmarried uh, uh, siblings, uh, sisters, or brothers who are not yet on their own. So he may have a lot of responsibility coming at him. So again, he's not saying I want to do something that's wrong, but Jesus says to him. Let the dead bury the dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. He says, go and proclaim how the kingdom of God has come near, that it's no longer something you have to wait for heaven to get to, but you can actually have the kingdom of God right here on earth. 
And then the last person says, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus says, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, I don't do a lot of plowing, but the idea here is the same as when you're on a, a multi-lane highway and you're checking your blind spot. You can't do that forever, right? Because if you do, you'll veer into somebody in front of you. So the idea is it's hard to drive straight when you're looking over your shoulder. Jesus says, the problem with you is not that you want to say goodbye. The problem with you is you really don't want to say goodbye. You're looking backwards. You're, you're, you're going to prolong that process. You have separation anxiety. You have, you have issues that you need to make a clean break. But he's not saying there's anything wrong with the relationships. He's not saying there's any reason that that's a bad thing to do. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that there are good things that you want that interfere with your discipleship. Jesus is saying that, that if your view of discipleship is, it's, it's a corrective for problems in your life. That, that I have sin or I have sickness, I have an addiction, I've got a failed marriage, I've got baggage, I've got a messy life. And if I give that to Jesus, then he will do something with it and make my life better. Well, the, the testimony of scripture and the testimony of many, many saints that you can, you can find a lot of, um, is that yes, that's true. That if you give your life, the messiest parts of your life to Jesus, then he will fix them or begin fixing them. But Jesus isn't content with the messy parts of our life. Jesus wants our whole life. What Jesus is saying is discipleship trumps the good things in your life. Discipleship is the most important thing you can do. Jesus says, I want everything in your life. I want the good and the bad. I want your education. I want your skills. I want your checkbook. I want your health. I want your time. I want your relationships. I want your children. I want your parents. I want your marriage. I want your singleness. I want your sexuality. I want every part of your life. And that's where we kind of check and say, well, that's just too much. I, we, we have sticker shock. We say, well, look, I'm fine with you in my back pocket. But I'm not prepared to take the good parts of my life, the things that seem to be working, and submit them to you as my Lord. There's a, there's a trite saying, and it is trite, but it's true. And it is the saying, if Jesus is not Lord, of all, he's not Lord at all. A couple of years ago, um, well, a couple of decades ago, uh, before I started paying attention, somebody wrote, uh, uh, God is my co-pilot. And, and I'm sure that they meant well by that saying at the time, but it's drawn a lot of fire over the years because, of course, God is not our co-pilot. I saw online somebody the other day had, had a great response. He says, he says, God is not your co-pilot. God is driving, you're in back, and it's an ambulance. (laughs) I thought, that's about the right picture to have. God is not our co-pilot, but we want God to be a co-pilot. We want to say, if I get lost in the fog bank, if things are kind of a mess, then sure, you take the wheel. Jesus, take the wheel, right? Um, We want that kind of God, but mostly we want to be driving along by ourselves. We want to be in charge. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying the place where we benefit from discipleship is our whole life, not just the bad parts of our life. I'm going to give you one more, one more mnemonic here. 
Um, the the uh, fourth century, sorry, fifth century, um, four hundred, four hundred A.D. I have to do the math. Uh, there was a there was a theologian in Africa named Augustine or Saint Augustine, as he's sometimes known today. And he said this. I I've used this in here before, but it's just so great. He gives this analogy. He says, "My soul is like a house, small for you to enter, but I pray you to enlarge it. It is in ruins, but I ask you to remake it. It contains much you will not be pleased to see. This I know and do not hide. But who is to rid it of these things? There is no one but you." I think that's the image a lot of us have of what it means to be a disciple. We say, look, my life's a mess. I've got things that are pretty ugly. I've got things you need to fix, Jesus. Please do. And that's good. You know, no less an authority than St. Augustine said it. So, yes, that's true. But I think it misses part of the picture. Uh, 150 years ago, there was a Scotsman named George MacDonald, and he said this. He said, I'm quoting C.S. Lewis, quoting George MacDonald. He says this, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those things uh, needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. That's that's what discipleship truly is. And we want to stop with the decent little cottage. We say... Are there parts of my life that discipleship would be helpful for? When a better question would be, discipleship, is there anything it can't do? Imagine what it would be like if we were that kind of disciples, if we were sold out, fully devoted disciples, if every part of our life we were perpetually asking, is there anything discipleship can't do? Our lives would certainly be different. They may not be easier, but what Scripture tells us and what we hear from the people who achieve that is that they have better lives. They have more peace. They have more contentment. So let's ask the question, discipleship, is there anything it can't do? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for Jesus and the lessons that we've been learning along the way about disciples. We pray, Lord, you would help us to be better disciples. If there are messy parts of our lives or, or if we're willing to admit the mess that is in our lives, we pray, Lord, you'd, you'd strengthen us to bring that before Jesus and give it to him. But Lord, we pray also for the good parts of our life, the, the pretty, happy, successful parts of our life, that we would have the courage to bring those to. That we would be willing to trade in what is good for the unknown better. We pray you'd do these things for us through Christ our Savior and Lord. Amen.